Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes where we're now back after one week of absence. Um, hope you guys are all doing well and not vomiting or sleeping or whatever. You're, what were you doing last week, Yaram? One of these things. <laughs> all of the above. Um, Hooray. No, last week actually was um, just a cold, but like, yeah, I'm finally not completely sick anymore. That's what I'm celebrating. I You've still got that like stuffy kind of nose thing going on a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and I apologize for that a little bit, that I will sound um, quite stuffy for the rest of tonight. Um, no, I think it's quite trendy. I think that's that will help it, us. Is mm-hmm. it, though? Um, yeah, I, uh, I I was collecting, like, I, I was doing, like, a gotta catch them all of bugs from my son's, uh, my son's childcare. And so I, I didn't have the funnest time <laughs> last week. But now I'm better. Now I'm doing doing well. Um, and yeah, back to, to talking about plant science. How have you been last week? Um, yeah, okay. I guess I was in Berlin for a little bit visiting people like you are. Um, we did one of our episodes in the same room, physically in the same room. And then I just sort of saw all of the people I haven't managed to see and touched them and hugged them and licked them and did all of those nice lovely things that I've not been able to over the last COVID period so that was really really nice and then I've been back in London and trying to work out what's happening with the world where (laughs) summer went what's if autumn's happening yeah just a bit of um re-equilibrating trying to work out you know this whole new normal thing where we are in the new normal as far as the world starting again but are we starting again what's yeah it's all a bit complex and it's sort of i think I, i'm spending a lot of energy now on constantly re-evaluating where we're at you know where what we can do what's happening in the world and, and then sort of re-equilibrating what i wanted to, you know it's, it's a bit it feels like this constant questioning time but mm-hmm. hopefully in a good way yeah. Also, like I, I stopped thinking that at one point the whole situation will end and we return to something that we had before. No, we will just like continue and adapt and make like new things and make like new rules and new ways we do things. But we don't just simply like snap with our fingers and go back to like like how it was in the end of twenty nineteen. I um, think that's that's the thing. So like we we had this big open up in the UK for better or for worse, um, probably a bit for worse, but, um, you know, a couple of months back, but it's, it's been gradually opening. Then we had this big, this big reopening and it was summer and it's, it felt like it should be normal. And there was this kind of weird, like confusion and grief and, and yeah, a, a bit of something strange because it was, we were kind of being sold that things were, were back to happening. And at the same time, they're not really back to happening and the world has changed. And I think that's been a bit of a, a confusing time and it's also you know this thing where you you feel like it's like what's wrong with me like why am i not you know everybody's telling well you know the the, the advertisements are telling me that the world is normal and i should be feeling normal again why don't i feel normal why am i still confused why am i still struggling with this and not managing to get over this and working my way through this and i think like i've been talking to some some friends in in the uk and also in berlin and i think a lot of people are going through that same kind of transition feeling where they feel like they should be doing better as well already like they should have got over the the past mm-hmm. you know months and months and months of of stress and trauma and loneliness and whatever's been been happening with different people and 
it's obviously not that simple. And I think that's been quite a weird process, honestly. That, yeah, like, definitely is. I should, and I, I guess a lot of us have this this thing generally when we're, we're physically sick, like when we get a cold um, or when we're stressed out or, or sad, like grieving something like there's this expectation, you like there's this part of your brain that's like, I should be over this by now. And that just makes everything a bit worse. Like you create this, this expectation for yourself of like what, like guilt of not being better and like added stress of not, not being happier yet. Um, and I think that's, that's a bit the state we're in now, <laughs> at least for me. Um, I hope all of you guys out there are doing okay with everything. Um, mm-hmm. I know everybody in different parts of the world is also at different stages of this whole COVID situation and, you know. Yeah. But, mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a similar weirdness here. Like, just today, we had, like, a childcare, um, like, parent night thing. Uh, and there it's also still in a state of just like these are the things we would like to do but we have no idea if we will be able to do this or not so just like everything has this constant very high probability of not actually um, working out Mm -hmm. so it's it's so weird because you you can't even make like the most basic plans because you never really know what's going to happen and also on the on the flip side so like i did i went some weeks ago i went to a comedy night with some friends and that was really great like you know hanging out with friends and seeing comedy and then afterwards i was like was was it really wrong of me to do that should i not have have been doing that like it was in a Mm -hmm. you know it was indoors there was people indoors like i was like did i make a mistake and there's that kind of questioning Mm -hmm. that's still happening a lot um yeah 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 um the other news you have is a little bit more of an exciting thing. <laughs> I saw something on your your Instagram feed the other day that you're yes. you're proper famous now. You're not just a podcaster. I, I'm proper TV famous now. Yes, um, I, mean, I think we, I talked about this on the show before that we I took part in this this sort of citizen science experiment thing where we put up like a wildlife camera, like a trail camera in the garden, and then would see the wild animals that would pass the garden at night, like raccoons and um, mice and squirrels during the day, and even, I think, a a ferret or something. Um, So we saw some animals, we took part in this project, and then at one point there was an email like saying, like, there's a TV crew, they want to film a story about this, who wants to take part in this. I was excited, like, I was interested and seeing like how a proper film crew works because I've done like YouTube stuff before and I wanted to see like how does it work for TV and it was mm-hmm. like a five hour appointment of like filming random stuff in the garden like we had to walk into the garden like 10 times um, having like useless conversations just to have like our mouth moving during the camera they were not even recording the sound during that bit but just um, as like sort of cutaway imagery and all of this like really took like five hours in the end we were 60 seconds in total approximately on screen i said oh, like wow. literally like one sentence in there mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then they misspelled my uh, like mispronounced my name that was also like they mispronounced the, like they said joram yeah they said joram um which mm-hmm. is like but it's joram in 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 german or in like whenever um uh, so it was like a really like anticlimactic experience like it was fun <laughs> during like all of the the filming and then the final result is just like this tiny little bit that they actually use and then if you think about like 
there were like multiple families that they shown and all of them were shown this briefly but you know all of them had like a five hour appointment before of filming so it was like this massive waste of everyone's time to have like this tiny little bit of a story well, i don't think i don't think that's the right way to look at it it's not a waste of everybody's time it's a demonstration of how you know highly polished art forms do take a lot of investment and you know that's also why we have to yeah. pay for these different types of art like there's people's skills involved there um, although like i've i don't know like i mean i'm in, invested in a project and i find a project cool so i want it to be displayed longer than like three minutes in total during this mm-hmm. like half hour tv show um but it didn't feel like they would tell that much of the story. It was just like very briefly, just like, oh, yeah, there's like camera, like sometimes there's raccoons in the garden and also a fox. Um, uh, and here's like some random imagery and some drone footage. And OK, next topic. Um, some people grow lettuce underwater. Uh, and Wait, tell me more about this underwater lettuce because I want to hear about that. Yeah, they, they built domes underwater, like it's two Italian researchers, um, and they are using sort of the constant temperature of the Mediterranean Sea to heat the underwater greenhouses. So they pretty much have like upside down domes underwater that are filled with, with gas or like air, um, and then they grow basil and some lettuce in there. And because of the, the temperature of the water, you have sort of this constant... I guess like somewhere between 10 and 20 degrees um, mm-hmm. of, of temperature and you don't need like you don't need cooling for your lights and you don't need any sort of heating for your greenhouse you just have constantly that um, but that's also like exactly as much as I could tell from the show because it was also so quickly told just like oh yeah they have this lettuce it's underwater look how cool it is some cool footage goodbye but that's our show I mean your job is to research more surely yeah I could have researched more about this but um it gave me Stefano Mancuso vibes, and that put me off a little bit. It sounds uh, interesting to me. I did, I'm I'm a bit like, especially in Europe, I imagine light is really the limiting factor, not like overheating. I mean, in most of like where we are in Europe, um, so I guess it makes more sense in very hot parts. But even then, yeah, I'm, yes. I, I want to read more. Like, I do want to hear more. <laughs> so, I mean, that surely that's the point. I mean, also the point of your segment was not to make Joram Schwarzman famous, but was to make people say oh my goodness a fox and then look more into this project right that was yeah probably um it's what we want so yeah i have no hard feelings it was just like really weird to see like how much effort goes in there and how small the outcome is like like Mm -hmm. it's made me it made me cherish things like youtube where you can have people also putting a lot of energy in there but then they can really go into a niche and take like 20 minutes just for that niche and they will find the audience yeah. cares for that niche and i know it's a different audience from what's happening on tv and all that like it's different things but it makes me appreciate that like if they do an interview for five hours with a person they will show more than three minutes of that in their youtube video um, but I think also, like, for me, there's this this perfection thing of when you look at a finished product all the time, you you think, oh, why why can I not produce videos like that? And then now you can see why, right? Like, you don't have a 20-man crew in five hours to produce, I know, a minute, 30 seconds. So that also is kind of yeah. nice for expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, you ever see, did you ever see on your footage two foxes at the same time? No. Yeah. I only ever saw fox butts, to be honest. Like, the fox mm. was very, like, um, 
very clever to position it always in a way that I could never see the face. It would always walk away from the camera. I saw it might not like, even be a real fox. It might be like a squirrel wearing a disguise. Maybe it could be. Um, I definitely saw like several raccoons at the same time. Um, like one was climbing the fence while another one was already closer to the camera. No, I'm, so. just, I'm just trying to start this um, conspiracy theory that there's only one fox that lives in the entirety <laughs> of London and that there's not multiple. Like, nobody's ever seen two foxes at one time. There's only one fox that moves I've very seen- far. It's unlikely that he commutes to yeah, Berlin. That's true. That's why I think the squirrel with the false ass is the most likely scenario here. <laughs> it's like that thing with the conspiracy theories where it starts off already a bit crazy and then to, like, justify my position, I have to add on mm-hmm. even more... All of the holes you have to like plaster down with like even more well, ridiculous. And then add in a bit of truth. So it is actually true that a lot of um, like non-threatening pre- like animals that would often be prey, they often mimic more threatening animals. So like some example with butterflies, they have like wings that are looking like the wings of a poisonous butterfly. This is mimicry. And this is what squirrels are now doing. So they're now like putting their tail <laughs> to look more like the tail of a fox. And that way, like, because from the front, from the front, they can see the predator. So like, you know, if they're looking forwards, of course, they can see a cat. But from the back, they're not protected. So they have to like, they have to make sure their butts mimic the butt of a fox. This is just natural evolution in an urban environment. Uh, It is very clever. And then they position themselves in front of wildlife cameras in a way that's like an optical illusion that like a tiny fist sized (laughs) squirrel looks like a dog sized fox. Um, it's That's all perspective. Like what, it's all depth perspective, yeah, you know? It's, like, it's the same tricks <laughs> as in Lord of the Rings when they made like the hobbits seem small and uh, the wizards seem big. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all just like... They have like, what, giant props just to make them... No, small, tiny props to make themselves seem large. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they have like tiny walnuts um, that they place all around. So you think like, oh, I know how big a walnut is and this squirrel fox is huge. Um, I think that's um, a good a good place for us to maybe segue into something that we might know a little bit more about. Hopefully, maybe a little, maybe maybe some plants. My favorite plant. And this week, um, we're back to our regular segments, and it's my turn to talk about my favorite plant. Um, and I asked a colleague of mine what her favorite plant is, and she was like, uh, she really likes common ivy. Um, I was like, first, oh, okay, common ivy doesn't sound too exciting. But then I looked a little bit into it, and I'm like, I was surprised. Like, it's, um, although, like, plants that are called, like, something like common this or that, <laughs> it's always like, okay, yeah, it's the common thing. Like, everybody knows about it. It, like, it hangs around. It's doing planty things whatever um but hedera (laughs) helix also called english ivy um is a quite interesting plant it's like it's an evergreen plant first of all i didn't know that i thought it's like shedding its leaves and it's doing that like all evergreen plants do but it doesn't do that all in fall like it stays green throughout the year and like leaves i think have a lifespan of like two to three years Mm -hmm. um before they actually dropped um and you might know it from like covering lots of ground like it's a very fast grower and like first grows all on the ground and then it starts as soon as it finds something to climb up it will start climbing trees or walls or um, anything um, like rocks um, and then like start growing on that Um, and there's the first interesting bit like because um, there's many different ways plants can actually scale heights right they can 
Um, if you think about a runner bean, for example, this has like these long like twines, these long sort of tendrils that wrap around sort of a whipping structures. motion, right? It like whoo, throws itself outwards and then like grabs onto whatever it finds. Yeah, and other plants have like sticky pads, like they have tendrils with sticky pads um, that they attach to surfaces to hold onto them. Um, and um, common ivy is using roots. They actually have like spe uh, special um, sticky roots that they can then cling into like small crevices and like I, like small rough I edges. I think that's why people hate it, right? Because like it's not just sort of sticking onto the surface. It's actually digging its way into like brickwork. So it's actually like crumbling cement or like the mortar in between mm -hmm. bricks because it's really like making its way in there. Although there's a debate about um, the actual like effect of that, like how how detrimental it actually is to buildings. Um, there's some like there's definitely like a camp of people saying like, look, this is breaking down um, buildings and structures. But there's also like some some ivy growing on like ancient uh, like like ruins, and they're actually there's some theories that think they they help to protect them by shielding them from water. Mm -hmm. Um, and avoiding that like water seeps into these structures and then breaks them down um, because these roots ap apparently don't go too deep into it um, but it depends really on the structure that they're growing on if you have like larger gaps like between bricks then they can actually get in there and then they can do damage if you have a sort of more um, perfect surface without bigger gaps in that um, the plants can still hold onto it, the surface, but it doesn't actually get into the structure and destroy it. Um, and then when it grows, it can grow quite tall. Like um, It's very common that it reaches like 20 meters in height, but it can grow up to 30 meters sometimes. Um, and yeah, that makes it like cover big areas. Like you can have an entire house um, wrapped in, in ivy or even an entire tree. And there's again the question about like with trees as well, like how damaging is it to a tree if the if the ivy is growing up it? And there's also it seems to be that it's not actually too damaging because first of all it doesn't like other climbing plants, it doesn't actually like strangle the tree, like it doesn't physically restrain the tree when it's growing to the point that at one point the the connective tissue of the tree is damaged. Um, and very often when the tree eventually dies the ivy dies with the tree so it doesn't scale another tree then so it's no evolutionary advantage for the ivy to kill mm -hmm. the tree because then it dies as well um and there's no real competition for light between the tree and the ivy because the tree has like this outward facing crown and the ivy is at the base at the stem uh, sort of in the shade of the tree so it doesn't really steal away any light from the tree that um uh by shading the tree's leaves um, so yeah, some other things about ivy is that it's like the whole plant is poisonous, but only like mildly poisonous. Uh, but it contains also uh, saponines. Do you know what uh, these are? Saponines, like it's something soapy. It's kind of like foaminess. Yeah, and so there's some like recipes where you can make like natural soap alternatives out of um, ivy as well. Like there's these like these chestnuts that are very famous, you know, like ho horse nuts or something. Um, soap nuts, I think we call yeah, them, don't soap we? Soap nuts, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but apparently, you can also make that from ivy. Um, it flowers right now, like it flowers from September to October. So that's why also, like I, I thought it's it's nice to talk about this now, um, which makes it a very um, important food source, like late in the year for insects, because most plants don't flower in fall. 
they flower earlier. Um, so food for insects is scarce. And so now like by flowering late, it provides a food source for insects and it re requires pollination to actually like make seeds and fruit. Um, and um, the, the, the final thing is, is that uh, while it's very common here in Western Europe, um, to to find it it's native here it's actually an invasive plant in most other continents um, because it grows so so quickly and so efficiently it's really hard to get rid of and in um, northern america for example um, there are places where it's uh, completely banned and forbidden to to sell it and grow it um, and they're trying to eradicate it there because it's yeah it's it's covering a lot of ground very quickly yeah, that's um, that's surprisingly many facts about a common plant like ivy, um, that or Hedera helix that I've picked for my favorite plant today. I feel like we should do some sort of saponin. Saponin? I don't know how to say that properly. I also don't know. <laughs> I want to say saponin. Um, challenge where we like blend different plants and then see <laughs> which of them can like clean some oil, like some oily paint mixture off a surface. Yeah. better because i think this has come up a few times before that quite a lot of plant species have these soapy substances in them so mm -hmm. we should like which which <laughs> plant reigns supreme in the fight against the i don't know greasy smudge or something <laughs> yes we'll workshop it i mean it, it'll be catchier you know there'll be a video <laughs> yoram will finally get another tv moment it will be literally hours of filming huge crew for a 30 second bite where yoram effectively cleans things which will also be quite satisfying <laughs> yes definitely yeah so it's my turn to talk about someone who is a non-white male scientist although in this case i'm kind of cheating a bit because i am shifting subjects areas and focusing on somebody who is primarily an artist but she is very relevant to science um, and she's also specifically quite relevant to plant science so her name is alexandra daisy ginsburg and she was born in 1982 and she's a south african slash british artist who does a lot of amazing art displays that i'll get into later um, she's living in london here in the uk but she sort of has um done very well for herself artistically and has had this, um, shows in, in many different parts of the world as as well as winning quite some prizes. And her artworks are quite varied in nature, but they're generally looking at humans, but in the context very strongly of nature, the way humans have impacted on nature, including plants, um, and also looking at this technological side of things. So... This is not only things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also like designer species um, and how we can sort of like, you know, manipulate organisms to do different things than what's expected. So I, I came across her because she was featured, I think, in the Nature Briefing in the last couple of days, because there's a sort of long form interview that came out in Nature Biotechnology with her recently. And this interview is focusing on a couple of recent projects that um, Alexandra has been working on where she has been with a team of other people recreating the smells of plants that are no longer alive. They're extinct mm. plant species. Yeah, so it's the, the project is called Resurrecting the Sublime um, and it's part of a, a team that's called um, Ginkgo Bioworks 
and together they have taken these three different flower species and they none of them exist in the wild or they don't exist at all anymore they've taken them from sort of museum specimens and they've done dna sequencing and they've then used this to understand what sorts of enzymes are present in those genomes which are related to the production of fragrance so you're like this this genome of this certain species creates this enzyme and it's been shown that if you have this enzyme you make this molecule x and we know that molecule x has this smell so that's kind of the basis and obviously it's a little bit it's a bit imprecise because just because something is in a genome you don't know you know if it's active if it's being expressed how that that enzyme is being expressed relative to other enzymes in the genome so you're not really certain how these pathways all connect and what metabolites, which are sort of the scents, the, the smells, what you get in the end. Um, but it is sort of a way of using this hardwired information that you can find even from museum, like preserved museum samples to get something that is, I mean, tactile is not the right word because you can't touch smell, but something that invades the senses mm -hmm. and is very artistic. And this is really the purpose of her art. So she, she went with the smell because it's something that you can really feel and it's evocative, right? So, I mean, you know, they've got this sense of the sublime as the sort of the name of the project. And the way it's set up is they also have these kind of glass, uh, almost cages, but it looks like um, kind of a diorama that you would see in the Natural History Museum where you have like some landscape and usually some, some people or some animals within this landscape but it just sort of has um, some rocks and maybe a picture of some plants. And you as one human go in and sit inside this glass display cabinet. And then you can sort of experience that environment and also smell these, these recreated smells. And the idea is that when the humans go in there, the humans themselves also become part of the exhibit, which also brings this idea of the fact that these smells don't exist outside of the exhibit largely because of human activity. Um, so there's kind of this, this also reflection back on what it is that humans have done to make these three species disappear. Mm -hmm. And the three species they've chosen, just to briefly um, say, it's uh, Hibiscadelphus wilderianus. Uh, so it's like a hibiscus species. Um that was found in ancient lava fields in Hawaii, in Maui. And colonial cattle ranching come, that came there just decimated all of those populations. And the last tree died in 1912. The second species is called Orbexillum stipulatum. And that's from Kentucky in the US. And that hasn't been seen since 1881. Um, and then the final one is Leucodendrum grandiflorum, which is from Cape Town. And that was also lost when um, Colonial's uh, impact brought vineyards into that region and they sort of just destroyed all of the habitat. And that hasn't been seen since the 1800s. So these are things that, you know, haven't been around for over 200 years potentially. And now you can kind of smell them again in this environment. And... Yeah, they, they ask in the interview for Alexandra to describe the smell of the three different plants. Um, she says, I'm, I'm not an expert, so I can't really give it a, a nice, you know, wine tasting equivalent of what these do smell like. 
but she says the leucodendrum has a deep tobacco-y kind of smell. Um, the orbit orbizillum is sort of citrusy and candy-like, and the uh, hibiscadelphus is rich, which I'm not really sure what. Maybe that's very floral, or maybe. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but she did also mention that hibiscuses. They're normally they don't have a scent. Um, so this was part of the the question of how accurate these things really are. Um, yeah, they're they're bird pollinated, so that's kind of something that's not usually strongly associated with um, scent. So this is like one of her big exhibits that's related very specific to plants, but she also has another. F- few works that are also under the way underway at the moment or that have been done in recent years and another one is something that is looking at pollinators and using ai so it's called um i don't know if it's the official name is the pollinator commission um so here she's creating a garden which will be i think a permanent exhibit at i think it's the the eden project in cornwall so again in the uk and I think it was an entry into a a competition which was on the theme of pollinators. And she said instead of making something about pollinators, she wanted to make something for pollinators. So she's used this artificial intelligence kind of algorithm to create a garden that contains a whole lot of plants that optimizes the diversity of pollinators. And again, she's discussing the fact that this is potentially going to look quite ugly to humans because the idea is here to favor what the the bugs basically what the pollinators want um so not only having a huge diversity of of plants but also having things that flower over longer seasons you know not just having like a sort of peak but having things that are as you said the ivy is is flowering in autumn so having things available through as much of the year as possible and she mentions the fact that often when we've made plants that are ornamental, we've actually sort of selected against things that pollinators might like. Um, And I think a really obvious example of this is like hydrangeas. So they have these, you know, these famous huge buffy purple and pink flowers. And a lot of the flowers that you see in the hydrangeas, they're actually fake flowers. They're kind of these like bracty structures. And that's what we think is visually pretty, but I guess for anything that wants to pollinate that and for the plant itself, that's not super helpful. So this is another thing. Um, but she has also like a whole lot of really interesting art. There was one that was um, E. coli that should be taken as sort of a dietary, not really a supplement, but you take it as a diagnostic. So the E. coli is genetically modified to change color depending on what's happening inside your body. So potentially disease that you have and that would change the color of your poo um so like you know if you your poo is red it means you have an iron deficiency i'm making this up now but you know it's like diagnostic e coli that they called e chromi um there's also one that is envisioning plants as sort of machines uh there's 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 lots of different stuff but it's all quite linked to this nature and um technology and human impact and you know, future methods and technologies. And I think it's it's really cool and interesting stuff. And it's obviously it's obviously meant to be quite provocative, which is sort of the purpose of art here. Um, but yeah, I think really nice. Uh, just to go back, her name is Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg. And we'll put all the links to her pages, but also to the interview um, there. But definitely 
someone to check out. So although she's not technically a plant scientist, I think I think this counts. I think she's enough of a plant scientist. Definitely, she's definitely had enough work in science um, to count for. Yeah. And I mean, we're often talking uh, about STEAM now these days instead of STEM. And I quite like that. It's like the addition of the A in there um, for arts. Uh, I find that very important. Uh, I find it very inspiring. Like I was while we're talking also like looking at the pictures and the images on her website. Um, and it's so inspiring. And like, I think like inspira inspiration is also important in science. Like, for your for your for projects for to come up with new ideas you need to have inspiration and uh, i often feel the most inspired when i talk like when i like see see like art or um, related like non stem things but like steam things yeah um like today i had a i had a like like a, a symposium um talk about like the gamification or like games as a method of conveying information and it was also so inspiring like there was nothing that i talked uh, like thought about before in the context of like science communication um but they were making like games for museums and stuff where they were like making actual fun games not like like the terrible like learning games that we had sometimes in school but like actual fun games that take stuff from game design and then sort of as a sidetrack teach you a lot about a specific thing in a museum and i found it also so inspiring um so yeah, thank you for, for bringing Alexandra Daisy Ginsburg because that's really, really cool. Like, I wish I could go to a museum and see this stuff in person. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this topic of art and science merging a lot, um, in particular in, in the context of sort of more my job stuff, but like thinking about where we are at the moment with the world and the catastrophe that we have with the climate and, you know, biodiversity catastrophe and everything looking quite bad. And a lot of the discussion to me is so I'm reading a book that's called from what is to what if where it's sort of reimagining possibilities for the future and this author i saw a talk with with him and he's talking about the fact that to have change you first have to imagine the potential for the change so there's a lot of like this need for imagination and like you have to envision the possibility for a, a positive future before you can get there and i think there's this, this weird like obviously with something like the climate crisis you also want to have a good vision of what can go wrong so that we we prevent that but you also need to see the positive aspects um and then the second thing is is what came up with alexandra is that you not just need to show what can happen and what should happen but you need to have something which like invokes feeling because you need people to be sort of spurred to action and that often happens not by thought process but by emotional responses and i think that's that is scientific that humans we respond emotionally to many things and you can do that by showing you know cute animals in distress but you can also do that by having you know the senses really engaged in different ways so sound and sight and smell and this sort of comes in here so i think it's it's really really important yeah let's talk 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 about bias bias Yoram, what's your bias? 
so yeah, my bias this week is um, the neglect of probability. Like we think, I think we talked about probability before. Often when it comes to like us over or underestimating probabilities, when we're told like, ah, oh, it's a five percent chance in our head, it's like depending on if it's a good thing or a bad thing, which is like, oh, it's certain mm, or it mm-hmm. it won't happen ever. Um, but but this- wait, is that is is that seen as like a problem if? Like, and, if somebody says you have 5% chance of dying tomorrow. Yeah. You're going to you're gonna overestimate that. But that also makes sense that you overestimate that, right? Because the outcome is very strong. Yeah. But sometimes when it comes to, like, health decisions that are not as, as strong as just, like, dying, when it says, like, it increases your risk of heart disease by 1%, like, what does that mean okay, to okay, you? Okay, okay, like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's really hard to, like, over, like, to properly estimate that because it is generally hard to understand probabilities and then you always have the fact that like it's a probability so it means like um you can just be in like the the unlucky section of the of the prob- uh, probability curve but this mm-hmm. um uh this fact is about the neglect of probability so they did an experiment there where they got in some some people and they told the first group um that they will put their hand on a little thing and they will get an electric shock with a hundred percent certainty and then they would measure the physical response of the body in anticipation of the electric shock um and of course then people will tense up and sort of prepare for impact of the electric shock um, and then they got the next group in and there they told them you will have a 50-50% chance like, of actually getting shocked. Um, and then they measured the uh, response. It was the same as with the group for the 100% shock. And then they reduced that down to like 5% with like several steps. Um, mm-hmm. And still with like a very low probability of actually getting shocked, people were still tensing up the same way people would tense up if they are certain that they will get the shock. Um and this led then to the idea of this this bias that um, we just in, in in some cases we just completely neglect the probability of it. We're not like overestimating it. We're not hearing five percent and um, understanding fifty percent in our minds. We're not inflating the number. We're just completely neglect, uh, neglecting the probability and just thinking, okay, um, the fact that this could happen means I will prepare for it to, uh, happening. Um, but and again, like, like, did they, they tried that with shocking people. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm often not thinking about the probability of being shocked when somebody's like, you might get shocked. I'm just thinking, <laughs> don't electric shock me. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just really not wanting to be electrocuted quite strongly. And that might be, I suspect the predominant thought in my mind, which makes it harder for me to do like the mathematics of probability. Did they also do like, Here's a slice of cake. You can put a napkin on your lap if you want to. Like, did they do a nice, a nice version of it? Like not, not preparing for the probability of cake coming or something? No, no. In um, in that um, uh, in that experiment, they didn't do anything nice. It's very often about like risk of something. But there's other um, other examples they give here in the in the Wikipedia article about like lot uh, classic lottery stuff when pe- they would give people two games one they would have one in uh one in a 100 million chance of winning 10 million 
And in the other game they could pick, they would have a one in 10,000 chance of winning $10,000. Um, and many people would choose the first one, even though like reasonable is to choose the second game where you have a much higher chance of winning something than in the first one where like your chance is minuscule to get the 10 million. Um, but because people can't grasp the probability at all, they just hear chance of winning 10 million and completely neg neglect the probability so they're picking the one with the bigger jackpot um over the one with the actual higher chances of getting the jackpot um do you think that would still happen if we were less judgmental about these kind of probabilities of 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 lottery like I can kind of see a reasoning behind that where it's like, oh, I don't really want to be involved in lottery because it's effectively gambling. And, you know, that's a dangerous path to go down if I keep on, like, playing lottery every day and doing, like, you know, this doesn't seem very, very healthy. And it's also, like, a bit of a self-judgment where I'm like, no, 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 I, I'm, not, I'm not a person who plays lottery because I know that you never win the lottery. But then if you're like, I'm not that person, but if it's for 10 million, I could be that person. Like everybody has their price and maybe their <laughs> yes. price is just 10 million, right? Like, I mean, yeah, that's, that's fair. Like in the past, but it's also like years ago now, but in the past when a jackpot would be particularly high, I would then be like, okay, for this one week I'm spending, the, I don't know, five bucks to enter the lottery. Um, because like how stupid would it be to not win the 20 millions that, that are in a jackpot? Um, but that's the thing. That's what you're trading off now is your perceived stupidity of of doing lottery at all. Because you're like, I know it's not much point of playing lottery because the, the chances are so low. And that's a judgment of yourself where you're like, I am not that person who plays the lottery very often. Mm -hmm. But then you're playing that off against another perceived stupidity of, but what if I had one by playing? And it's so much more. So there's like this, this threshold thing. Where it's not really about the probabilities anymore, it's about your own self-image and the cost of overriding your self-image, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's much more complex when it comes to like the individual decision about about the lottery because yeah, it's it's much more than the actual probability um, of of but deciding. I, I also sometimes think this about um, like cosmetic things. So like you can. As a woman, it's very easy to spend a lot of money to make yourself prettier. You know, you can get like eyelash extensions and, you know, do your eyebrows and do hair. There's a lot of like sort of stuff. And I think you can do it as man, men, but it's not as accessible in our current society. But, you know, it's, it's easy as a woman to put more money into beauty. And for me, it's not that I don't have that money. It's that my sort of think, oh, I don't want to like, I would judge myself if I was spending 10% of my income on beauty because I that's not how I want to see myself that I spend 10% of my income on beauty because I think I should be spending that on, I don't know, chocolate cake or buying plants or um, accumulating books that I'm never going to read. It's, it's like, this is this is my, my judgment. But then if that beauty was cheaper, I might still do the beauty. And it's not that I, it's not like about doing the beauty or not. It's just like mm -hmm. the judgment of yourself for investing in that thing that you see as a bit frivolous mm -hmm. and that's where the lottery is as well to me where you're like i know that's frivolous but if it was cheaper maybe i would get a butt implant maybe i would um <laughs> have that surgery that makes me taller or do life i would get really thick luscious hair i'd get like nice long curly hair um, yeah like uh, proper extensions 
like seven meters. No, like the one where they they actually like drill it into your head. Like I don't want. Oh, I don't sounds... want it clipped on. I want like something where. <laughs> that sounds painful, though. Um, I don't know. They put like bear DNA into my my skull, <laughs> and like bears have nice hair, right? What animal has good hair? Like maybe lion DNA. <laughs> And then I could have like and long red orange hair. That yeah, would be beautiful. Would have to be that male lions because the female lions they don't have the same level of hair. Like I guess they. I'm okay with that. Or yeah. like an orangutan. Yeah, that could be good. Um, but back to the the neglect of probability bias. Um, the last thing I want to say about this is that uh, for our daily life, um, or it has um, the impact. Uh, to when you think about like how much do you want to stay to protect you from harm because mm-hmm. you can have two schools of thought like you can have the nanny state where like the state decides what things are risky and what are not and then you ha- can s- have sort of the libertarian state where it's all like individual decision making of whether or not you partake in certain activities because you can judge for yourselves and this shows um, this this neglect of, of probability shows that we're very bad at making very good decisions on our own when it comes to probabilities, when it comes to things that don't certainly uh, will lead to an outcome, but that will lead to a chance of having a certain outcome, like drinking and driving or taking certain medical procedures, getting a vaccine against an infectious disease. Um, These things as a result have probabilities you're not 100 percent protected from the virus you have like a higher chance of being protected from the virus um and therefore this neglect of of probability would rather uh, make a case for having a nanny state where like which nanny state is sort of like also a judgmental term but where you have like bodies or like governmental bodies public bodies um that are good at assessing the risk and then um making decisions like and laws and protections based on these decisions that are made by people who understand probabilities better because they like actually like sit down and try to figure out these probabilities um as opposed to like everyday people having to make the call whether or not they do something or or leave it be so are you are you now becoming more pro nanny state is that what i'm hearing i always was in favor of a nanny state like no me, no you were that's so creepy. <laughs> no, a I daddy was. state is somehow creepier than a nanny state. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, but I was always in favor of having like um like proper like regulations for for harmful things, but then like evidence based regulations, like n- like regulate regulating substances based on actual risks and not based on culture and tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, like in Germany, where we have like tons of alcohol abuse, where there's like solid evidence that we should do something against that whilst other substances are heavily regulated and, and criminalized where there's no evidence that they're that, uh, as harmful. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. I want to mention something quickly first that is not fun but it's interesting. Um, so in in Australia last year, we had, or at sort of the start of last year, the end of the year before, we had this really extreme bushfire season um, that was just completely devastating. And following up from that very extreme bushfire season, there was a lot of science saying 
yeah, um, this is probably climate change. This would not have been as bad and awful and, you know, if it wasn't for the climate crisis. And so my mum sent me an article that came out in the conversation like last week, which is reporting on the fact that in New South Wales, so in one of the states of Australia, um, a group of survivors from the bushfires, people who were Australians who were affected by the bushfires, have now basically sued the Environment Protection Agency of the Australian government for being responsible for not taking enough responsibility um, for climate change and therefore causing the bushfires. And the court has now basically said that the Environmental Protection Authority, I think the, the EPA, they argued that although their job is to protect people and protect the environment it doesn't have to have a specific definition it doesn't have to specifically mean they have to do climate action but the court has basically said no it's that's part of it like if you're going to do environmental protection that does now have to include climate action so there's basically now a push from this court case that is like a compulsion towards taking stronger action because of this case which is Quite yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, it's interesting that now uh, we see that, funnily enough, we also saw that uh, recently in Germany, that f by going through the court system, we can actually push changes f in favor of environmental action. Like in Germany, the government made like a big climate, um, like passed a climate law, like a package of, of like a big climate deal. Um, but all experts says this is far from being enough. And they actually went to court. And then the highest German court, the constitutional court, like scolded the government and was like, this is not okay. This is not enough. You have a responsibility towards the country. You have to make a better environmental deal. And then they had to rework it. And they made like a better deal because it went through the court system because people actually sued the state for not taking care of their like citizens and the future mm -hmm. of the state by having terrible laws um, to fight the climate crisis. Um, so, so yeah. this is it's very similar. Like the EPA already had this this job of protecting the environment, and they first sort of said we protect the environment generally, but not specifically against any threat. And then they're like, oh, and also we are kind of doing something. And the court was just like, yeah, what you're doing is not enough, which if anybody's looked at Australia recently, yep, no. <laughs> um, we're, I think we're winning at being the worst respondents for the climate crisis. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah, so it's really interesting to see how this continues globally as like private citizens are now suing their government to take more action. This is... yeah. Yeah, I'm fascinated. I want to see how this turns out. Yeah, I'm just really glad that people find more like more ways and creative ways to actually push for for change because, like, also when you, I've I've been in a situation where I've struggled to get people in authority to recognize and respond to clear problems that were happening, and the best advice I ever got was show them how it will cost them mm -hmm. which also links to my idea of if you can't get something to if somebody in authority is not listening to you and they don't want to make changes make it more annoying for them to have to deal with you as a problem than dealing with the initial <laughs> problem and this this kind of 
solves both of those, right? Like the government is going to cost <laughs> them money if they get sued. And also if they keep on getting sued, like they might as well just like save the time and actually deal with the freaking problem instead of having to cost. So, like mm-hmm. perfect. Like <laughs> it's, it's time for radical action. You guys, <laughs> we're not saying you have to burn things because as it turns out, climate change is actually already making that happen in very bad ways. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, don't don't burn down the uh, capitalism or the patriarchy in regions that are at fire uh, like at fire risk. Like well, let's maybe use a metaphorical fire <laughs> currently and then we'll work our way up to the bigger fires but please not in Australia or other flammable areas. <laughs> or just use uh, cold plasma instead of fire because that's my next wow, fact. <laughs> what a smooth segue. <laughs> Um, I, I read a, a rather long article on sciencenews.org about the benefits of cold plasma, and I found that fascinating that I wanted to, ch- uh, to, to talk about this here. I mean, cold plasma in itself is just like a, f- a physics topic, so um, why talk about that here? Um, because it could be very important for farming in the future. Um, there's lots and lots I'm of... I'm listening. There's lots and lots of experiments being done on of, on putting plants into plasma. And so first to understand what plasma actually is, it's what I didn't know. It's sort of like a trivia question. It's like, what is the fourth state of matter? And that's plasma. That's when... Wait, 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 wait. What I've I, done this one. Yeah. <laughs> what are the other states of, pl- uh, of, of matter? I, I think I told you I went to like a long time ago before I was living in London. I went to um, the London Eye and it had like a tourist experience where it had the four dimensional experience of the London Eye. <laughs> and the fourth dimension was them throwing water in your face. <laughs> it was like, I don't know what the, I mean, the other three dimensions are like X, Y and Z, I guess. And then water and like the sixth dimension is time, I think. We're not really certain what the fifth dimension. Anyway. <laughs> So. It really depends on how you set up your dimensions. I mean, to most people I know, like the fourth dimension would be time. But maybe, yeah, maybe no, there's like see, water no, no, and popcorn no, no. and then time or something. I mean, maybe what they threw at me was plasma. It's I don't know if I would actually... Would I tell plasma if it hit me in the face? Like, would I be able to be like, hmm, that's definitely not water, that was plasma? Um, it depends on what the plasma is made of. Um, like, if it's the plasma that you find in the sun you could tell by being burned <laughs> away but if it would be cold plasma there is plasma that you can actually like put on your skin without burning yourself um uh, because it's so what plasma actually is it's just a state of matter often gases where um all of the electrons leave the atoms and so they all start flowing it becomes like one big pool of electrons one big like source soup often they use the word soup actually for it um, a big electron soup um, and this has like very interesting properties, um, most of which I don't understand. But when it comes to living things, is um, that it has two properties. First of all, it can make living things not be living things anymore by blasting by them with them? The, <laughs> with the electrons. So you can actually kill like fungi okay. and bacteria, uh, bacteria and lots of like microorganisms. You can kill with cold plasma. So that makes it interesting if you, for example, blast um, seeds with cold Sorry, plasma. Sorry, do, do you understand how you make plasma be cold? No. Or it's just like some things are can be in the plasma state even when they're cold, just like how some things are liquid at room temperature. Is it like that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, it's that kind of thing. 
Um, like if you if you imagine like a plasma ball, like this this glass ball, um, where you have like the the weird like tentacles of plasma going, and mm-hmm. you touch it, and then it goes to your fingers. This entire thing is not much warmer than room temperature. Um, and there's is plasma, that plasma inside. Though? That's plasma. Yeah. And that's hey. actually plasma that you can use for experiments. Like some of the research groups that I mentioned in the article actually use these plasma balls by just putting um, like plant material on the outside of this ball um, and then have the plasma sort of interact through the glass with the plant material, which seems to be like less effective than actually putting it in the plasma, but it seems to have some effect still. Um, so something what's it, that, Sorry, what's, what effect is it having? What's it doing? It, for example, can sterilize seeds. So if you want to like store seeds, um, we we uh, sterilize them in a the lab often with like ethanol or some other chemicals so that there are no fungi growing on it. So you, your seeds don't get moldy, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also do that with plasma. Um, and that can be more sustainable than using chemicals. Um, so the idea is that in like a larger scale, you would then sterilize your seeds in a big like plasma um, chamber or whatever in a conveyor belt and every every individual seed is um, zapped with some plasma. There's one thing, but the more interesting thing that I fa- found in this article is that when like the plasma gas is made, it creates reactive oxygen species from the air and reactive nitrogen species. Um, so it puts nitrogen in a state where it can react and when it can react, it can it is bioavailable and it can be used as fertilizer. This is what they're trying to to like figure out if they can actually make plants take up nitrogen from the air if they provide it in the form of plasma instead in the form of just like cold air. And they do see some effects. Um, there's like published peer-reviewed research where they blast the plants with plasma and they see that they germinate earlier or they grow taller. Um, they make more biomass um, with different species. But it's still, um, a lot of it is still pretty magical in terms of we don't fully understand everything around it. Like with different species, you get different effects. With different types of plasma application, you get different effects. With different types of plasma, you get different effects. Sometimes it's like beneficial, sometimes it's detrimental. So we are very far away from being able to just blast everything with plasma and everything will be better. Um, but apparently in some cases, in some studies plasma has an effect on plants and i had no idea about that like so i'm still i i have my doubts i have to be honest like i was reading that i was constantly being like really like really though but there's in 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 the article that we're linking they're citing sources and um there's multiple research groups working on this and um it seems to be interesting at the very least maybe it doesn't make it to like a fully scalable technical application but it's interesting that this magical fourth state of matter can help plants to grow better. Mm. So, <laughs> I mean, it makes me think that I have to go and watch some videos about what exactly plasma is and yeah. <laughs> how I can get my hands on this. I definitely always wanted one of those like electricy globe things when I was a kid, but did not realize that was plasma. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's one effect in there that uh, actually makes sense to me that sometimes this plasma can like burn sort of micro ridges into the seed and that changes, for example, the the hydrophob- uh, hydrophobicity or hydrophilic mm-hmm. properties of the seed. So it can take up water just like 5% more efficiently, 
but that can be a boost then when it comes to germination then it germinates five percent quicker and then has a head start compared to the one that doesn't have to change surface so these are things where i can understand that this actually I mean, has a benefit i mean yes but then also if you're saying like that the thing of the plasma is that it's basically pommeling something with electrons like I can also change that seed's hydrophobicity like by like hitting it with a rock. It's like, yeah, when you physically hit the seed, that does make yeah. sense to me, right? Like that that seems yeah. logical. Just like the thing of it then kills the fungi. Yeah, I can see how that could happen, but you'd have to get the the amounts really right that you damage yeah. the fungi without damaging, which is also a problem with normal sterilization, right? That you sterilize away the fungi without just like murdering. Yeah. The seeds, yeah, interesting. Very, very strange research that I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some pictures in the article and many more links. So if you want to see like some plasma, I mean, very often they literally have like a petri dish and like a little like um like steel tube that comes down and they have like a tiny little like it looks like um, a lightning bolt going into the petri dish. So it's a very sort of lab technical setup that we are at right now. We don't have like a conveyor belt where we can treat an entire greenhouse worth of seeds with plasma and then grow them in a greenhouse. Um, so yeah, it's still so much more to learn about this. But, yeah. um, I have something that's completely not related to plasma, but does have a kind of pew pew <laughs> effect, um, which is going to be my segue. So Tom from at Lover Watts sent us a fact for our 100 fact roundup. Um, via Instagram, but I decided to take a little hiatus from social media and did not see it until today. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the fact. Sorry about missing that. Um, it is a fact about liverworts, and I don't know if we actually had any facts about liverworts in our 100 favorite plant facts, which is a little bit embarrassing. Um, it's less of a fact and it's more of the fact that these liverworts, they have, um, as, as with like mosses and a lot of these kind of basal plants, they rely on moisture as a way to distribute the, the the sperm, basically, of the plant. So, you know, angiosperms, flowering plants, they often have pollinators, which act as middlemen to carry the, the sperm to the egg. Um, in the case of things like mosses and also like liverworts, it's often just moisture. So it's sort of, it's like going on the wind, but instead you're going like flowing through water. So there's, there's swimming sperm, which is already kind of cool. Um, but there's a really cool video of a liverwort species called Conocephalum conicum. Um, and it shows how they are actually spurting out the, the sperm mm. into the air. It looks like these little puffs. And to me, it actually, it's really reminiscent of if you've ever seen these underwater coral spawning videos where they suddenly just like release a ton of their sperm into the ocean. And this is like flying into the air. And I recommend you watch it. And I especially recommend you watch it with the sound on because it has this super dramatic music in the background as well. <laughs> so like sort of time lapse and like drama, drama, drama. Um, so yeah, sorry, it's not, it's one that you have to go up and look look as homework. But I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. And um, <laughs> thank you for sending that fact in. And again, I'm sorry that I only got to it now. <laughs> but But you got to it. So that's good. Um, I have uh, something that's 
sort of related to the idea of changing the property of, of seeds that I talked about before, but it was like in a completely different context that I found this. Um, so there's a new paper that's published where they are protecting um, soybeans from rust. So um, rust is like a fungal disease. It's called rust because it makes like little ru rusty looking spots on the plant and it can completely destroy a harvest. Like if you have a bad infection of, of rust fungi in your, in your crop, um, you can lose up to like 90% of your harvest to it. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And so one thing that researchers found now to treat that, to, to deal with the problem, um, is coating soybeans in um, a nano-coat of cellulose. So they, they, made, like, they made a technical way of making cellulose nanofibers um, and coated the soybean with that. And that changed, again, the surface properties of the bean um, to be more accepting of water. And that changed um, sort of the growth conditions for this fungus to its detriment. So it can't grow as well um, and, and survive as well on these soybeans. So they are now more resistant to this fungus um, just by spraying it with cellulose. And it's it's this is nice because like cellulose is a very common polymer mm -hmm. that we know is safe like it's it's not like you're spraying this with some like heavy metal ions that you were used in the past to kill fungi because heavy metal ions also kill us like it's not good to eat them but if we eat just like a nano layer more of cellulose it's just like eating a little bit more salad it doesn't change anything for <laughs> us for 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 our biology so while this is also like this is lab results so um still not in like industrial application um but i think a very cool way of um yeah fine-tuning surface conditions um to so that some fungi can't grow as well um i have a very quick mention of a paper and it's it's kind of less about the paper and more about the fact that i have decided what i want to call the new segment of our podcast so, you know, we have this thing where I sort of tell you a method that was used and you have to guess how it's linked to plants. Mm -hmm. It's usually a, a non-planty method. I think I want to call that um, you're going to need a zebra. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to need you to make some sort of jingle that has the phrase you're going to need a zebra. And this is because I saw a publication that was coming out in Ecology and Evolution late last month by uh, Wagner and colleagues. And it's titled Rolling Pits of Hartman's Mountain Zebra, Zebra Equus Hartmanii, Increases Vegetation Diversity and Landscape Heterogeneity in the Pre-Namib. So basically, um, it's that zebras like to roll in the dirt. Um, but by doing this, they sort of create these, these dust-bathing regions. They, they sort of create pits, the so-called rolling pits. And these have altered soil characteristics. Um, the, the, the size of the soil, like the grains, changes. Um, it's easier um, for like water to get in. And because of that, that changes the plants that grow there and then also changes the bugs, the arthropods that come there as well. So, you know, <laughs> by zebras like frolicking around in the dust, presumably to cool themselves, I guess, or maybe also to get rid of um, lice. I'm not really sure why. They're engineering the ecosystem around them and making it like possible for vegetation to move in and creating entire ecosystems so yeah <laughs> I, I kind of love this sort of research oh, yeah, and yeah. i think our new topic has to be called you're gonna need a zebra <laughs> oh yeah that's really cool um i'm always amazed when like 
animals shape their ecosystem around them but then i mean that's what we humans do all the time and uh it's probably just like my was it like thinking too high of our species and too too little of other species um whatever proper name mm -hmm. this effect has i'm definitely affected by it um because yeah we do it all the time and we see it all the time in nature that like living things have an influence on this uh, environment but it's really cool to imagine that like these zebra rolling pits drastically change the environment then if the zebras wouldn't would stop rolling they would still hang out and but would stop rolling it would have a big impact on the on the landscape Zebra stop rolling is an alternative name. I do think this is maybe <laughs> the third thing that I've brought that is related to zebras. We also did the one where they did the the um, environmental DNA from the air in the zoo. I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure zebras were involved then. And there was also, I think, something about giraffes versus zebras peeing or pooing and that altering the ratios of nitrogen and carbon and phosphorus in the soil that then favoured the growth of different plants, which I think then the zebras and giraffes were eating in different abundances there was this like beautiful like circle of life happening um so i won't i won't make it always about zebras and i don't think we'll do it every week or even every second week but i do i really enjoy this now i'm, I'm reading a lot more um sort of environmental ecology papers um these days and it's it's always really fun to see these things um and see how it links mm -hmm. back to plants and i think it's also good because i think like a zebra is a pretty good draw like if you're not a scientist you probably still enjoy zebras but you might be less excited by you know a small form that's growing in the rolling pit of a zebra but then this brings the people to that vegetation it's, it's a nice a nice link there the zebra <laughs> <laughs> Cat fact. I have a cat fact today that finally, like, systematically assesses the personality traits of cats. Um, there has been a study where scientists studied over 3,000 individual cats and found, like, five personality and two um, sort of behavioral traits um, that you can then use to like assess, like describe the personality of a cat, both on an individual level and on a sort of um, level of the different breeds. How how are they different from Sorry, one another? Is this like a Myers Briggs or like an Enneagram for cats now? Yeah, pretty much. Like my cat is eight Enneagram shoulder one. Yeah. Uh, do you want to guess what the traits okay. are? Oh, I can see your list already, Yarm. I'm ah, sorry I ruined bad. it. You ruined it, Tegan. But so, yeah, then... Um, I I can already suggest something that I think is missing from the list, but you yeah. go, you go, you you do you first. Yeah, let's like let's talk about the list first and then you can tell me what's missing because I also found it like it, it can't be complete. Um, so the first, mm -hmm. first trait is activity slash playfulness. The second mm -hmm. one is fearfulness. The third one mm -hmm. is aggression towards humans. Then sociability towards humans, sociability towards cats, and then two behavioral traits, sort of litter box issues. So when they are refusing to use a litter box or are doing a poor job at using it, or and the final behavioral trait is like excessive grooming. Um, and with these traits, you can describe cats, um, I don't know, completely, but well enough uh, according to this study. Mm -hmm. What do you think is missing? 
So my friend's cat screams a lot and I don't think it's being sociable towards humans. I think it wants attention and it wants food. So I would say that that's like a, maybe one of the latter ones where it's more about the behavior than the actual activity. It, it wants, it's like needing. It's not like it wants to communicate so much like in a social way. It's it's like needs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yes. Communicating needs maybe? Yeah. Yeah, like, like, like so also cat, like scratching at the door to get out uh, very, uh, very loudly, and like other cats, they yeah, just like wait. It's not being and aggressive. It's not being aggressive. It's not scared. It's not playful, and it's not really trying to socialize. It's just like doing things to get its needs fulfilled. Yeah, and I would say like specifically this cat I was looking after, like it, it screams a lot. Like it will just come up and like meow at you, and then if you're like, "What do you want?" It will be like meow, 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 meow. But it was also doing behavior where. It started eating a fern and like the fern was bad for it. So it ate some fern and then it vomited the fern immediately. Um, <laughs> and then it realized this and then it tried to eat the fern again. And I was like, don't eat the fern. And then it realized that it was getting attention from eating the fern. So it was doing this thing where like, I mean, you can see little kids do it when they know they're being naughty. It was like <laughs> biting the fern, but looking at me as a way like it didn't want to eat the fern the, the fern made it violently ill it didn't like the taste of the it didn't enjoy the fern experience <laughs> but it was using the fern as a way to get other demands met <laughs> like so maybe manipulation i would say like <laughs> and you see also children do it right when they're testing the boundaries yeah. like it's this like yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Have, I have very first-hand experience of that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I have also seen your son eat ferns. It's true. Obviously, like locking eyes with you, and then just like hitting like a glass thing as with full force, or throwing something across the room um, while maintaining eye contact to see the reaction. What's happening? Yeah, and I think all of you should spend a nice, happy like two minutes going and looking at Gato Malo on YouTube because it's this <laughs> cat, um, the Thug Life cat, who is pushing something off the the counter and is told not to, and then like just locks eyes with its owner and slowly <laughs> taps it off. And again, I don't think that's aggression. I don't think it's sociability towards humans. I think it's just like. <laughs> Manipulation, boundary testing, attention. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Boredom, maybe. Yeah. So the researchers to to find all of these traits, they ask owners of cats, and then they had to do like a survey of like 138 questions, and they had to do it twice. So with mm -hmm. like a, some uh, time between the two surveys, so they to to just check like you you can even out like some variability by by seeing. If the person just like, if the cat had just like vomited on the floor and then so they were like giving them all, lots of bad scores to, <laughs> uh, on that survey and then, then like the second time the cat didn't vomit, then they could see the differences. Mm -hmm. um, and then they could map like all of the different breeds and they could find stuff like the Russian blues are the most fearful cats, whereas like Burmese cats or like Abyssini uh, Abyssinian. Burmese are playful and social towards humans. Yeah. Um, and then, like, Bengals are super active. Was, was I right? Um, social towards humans is, yeah, Burmese are super social towards cats and to also towards humans. Yeah, and uh, CMEs as well. And but I mean, That's like, the cat I had. That's my favorite cat. Yeah. So they're super sociable um, towards humans and towards cats. 
whereas for example like the european i i guess european short-term recipe is just called european so which is my cats they rank like the second lowest on the sociability towards human scale um so i'm happy that i have like two outliers because mine are very social as well Okay, and with that, I think we've come to the end of the podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want to reach out to us on other medias, you can find me on sometimes on Facebook, um, mostly on Instagram. I'm back there now after a little bit of a hiatus. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, on Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at Plants Pipettes. And we also have a website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. We have a lot of archives of cool science things that we have written about in the last couple of years. So definitely check that one out as well. Uh, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you for listening. Until next time. And we'll be back next week. Goodbye.